Hello to the growing audience of the Questions You Didn't Ask podcast, hosted by me, Naisha Frey, CEO of Naisha Frey Consulting, LLC. Please be sure to share your favorite episodes with family, friends, and other people in your network. We are growing our audience, and that means we need the people power of those who love and support our message of health equity in the African-American community and beyond. We are blessed to have you on our journey and prayerful that we're doing what we're doing here is inspiring health equity, especially for the historically marginalized populations in your community. One thing that I have heard is that much of what we talk about is relatable to people who are not in the African-American community. And we are glad to be able to share our unique and similar struggles and solutions with everyone over the airwaves. Another thing that I hope you can relate to is that we are all working parents and family members. That includes me, the host, the producers, and most of our guests. So if you hear background noise that most of us call life, then please charge it to our culture of grace, gratitude, and realness, where we encourage everyone involved to come as you are. Thank you all for joining us in a new series of questions you didn't ask. In this series, we will be exploring the topic of parenting children with disabilities in the African-American community. Some of you know that I am the proud mother of a daughter who has Down syndrome. So this topic is another example of my mantra. I am what I do, and I do what I am. When I was growing up as a small child, I didn't have much interaction with people with disabilities. I was given the honor in fifth grade of assisting the special education teachers and working with the kids in class. At that time, I didn't see myself in them, but I had love and compassion for my peers with disabilities. Later, my mother became friends with a woman who is a polio survivor and is an amazing warrior for justice. Her name is Dr. Joy Weber. She is a major part of my family and equity accountability network. Dr. Weber is a fearless, no-holds-barred truth teller. Her life stories and experiences, along with her late partner, the amazing world-renowned universal design architect, Ron Mace, made me think differently about inclusivity, equity, and justice. The imprint that they had on my life was even more important when I learned that my daughter had developed Down syndrome when I was pregnant with her. Their example of living life to the fullest while embracing their disability and their dynamic skills, intellect, courage, and community gave me hope for the future of my daughter. With that being said, there was one major difference. They were white and my daughter is black. I knew that these parts of her identity being female and black would pose additional challenges for her that they did not have to navigate. This is where intersectionality began to be a living, breathing part of my life and not just some concept that I wrote about in papers or researched through focus group or presented on at conferences. As the chairperson of the inaugural Equity Task Force for First and Families North Carolina, which is a nonprofit serving people and families with disabilities, I led a discussion series with the staff where I defined intersectionality as the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender, as they apply to a given individual or group, regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. This term was first coined by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw back in 1989. Donna R. Walton, author of Shattered Dreams, Broken Pieces, says, 
Through an awareness of intersectionality, we can better acknowledge and ground the differences among us. These differences include, but are not limited to, ethnicity, gender, age, sexuality, ability or disability, culture, class, and even religion. In today's discussion, we'll be talking about many of these identities and the intersecting nature of them as they relate to disabilities. So what is a disability? According to a research article published in 2015 by Blick et al., the World Health Organization defines disability as any health condition resulting in impairments, i.e. problem in body function or structure, activity limitations, for example, difficulty executing tasks, and participation restrictions, those that provide limitations in the ability to participate in life situations. As you can see, there are different types of disabilities. The CDC distinguishes between developmental and intellectual disabilities, where developmental disabilities are a group of conditions due to an impairment in physical, learning, language, or behavior areas. These conditions begin during the developmental period, may impact day-to-day -day functioning, and usually last throughout a person's lifetime. Intellectual disability is a term used when there are limits to a person's ability to learn at an expected level and function in daily life. Levels of intellectual disability vary greatly in children. Children with intellectual disability might have a hard time letting others know their wants and needs and taking care of themselves. Intellectual disability could cause a child to learn and develop more slowly than other children of the same age. It could take longer for a child with intellectual disability to learn to speak, walk, dress, or eat without help, and they could have trouble learning in school. When it comes to African-American children, there tends to be some cultural resistance to quote-unquote labeling a child at an early age based on the advice of medical doctors, school system personnel, or even social services due to years of either neglect or abuse by these organizations and institutions. Once a parent gets past this resistance, they then are faced with some interesting health concerns that are outlined in a 2011 paper by Greenberg and Seltzer, where they document having a child with a disability poses a significant risk to parents' physical and emotional well-being. Parents of children with a disability often experience more physical health symptoms, negative affect, and poorer psychological well-being than parents without a child with disabilities. Caring for a child with a disability brings multiple challenges to parents, such as additional financial burdens for treating their child's condition, dealing with the child's problematic behavior, and social stigma associated with disabilities. One of the primary buffering effects or protective factors of this is a supportive family, especially among African-American single mothers. One of the reasons that a supportive family is so important for this population is that according to 2015 research paper by Blick et al., disability constitutes the largest underserved group in America, where one in five individuals are affected or living with a disabilities. These disabilities intersect with all historically disadvantaged and underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. 
this fact of disability communities being underserved and deemed invisible is consistent worldwide. This same paper asserts the following quote from researchers, the omission of disability as a critical category in discussions of intersectionality with race and ethnicity has disastrous and sometimes deadly consequences for disabled people of color caught at the violent intersects of multiple differences. For example, white people with Down syndrome in the US had a median death age of 50 in 1997, while the median age was 25 for African-Americans with Down syndrome and only 11 years old for people of other races with Down syndrome. Also, there are no regulations in place to encourage the inclusion of people with disabilities in research as currently exists for women, children, and members of minority groups. Now, I could go on and on, <laughs> but there would be nothing left for our esteemed guest so why not let her share with us, our audience, about her experience, work, love, and family. Now, I'm going to take some time to let my guest introduce herself because what better way for someone to speak about a topic that is commonly um, causes invisibility than to speak with their own voice. So Maya, would you mind sharing with our audience, telling them a little bit about who you are? Hello, everyone. I am Maya Cornet. I am the proud mother of an autistic Black girl who is an amazing self-advocate. I am also a teacher, writer, mentor, friend, and lover of community. Maya has been walking alongside of me um, in my journey from the very beginning. We were both fortunate to be pregnant with our daughters at the same time and our daughters are only a month apart. So Maya literally held my hand through every part, twist and turn of this journey as I held hers. And what she won't say is that she's also the co-director of the Collective Health and Education Equity Research Collaborative. She, her work uses both qualitative and quantitative approaches to examine reducing the negative impacts of racism and sexism on sexual health HIV AIDS prevention, cardiovascular health, and education leadership. Her work has been funded by the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Mental Health, and the Center for AIDS Prevention Studies at the University of California, San Francisco. Now, I'm sure I could go on and on about all her publications and the amazing impact that she and her daughter, Malia, are making in, this, in our environment, but I'm sure that will come into play as we get involved more into this conversation. So Maya, we're gonna have a conversation just like we normally do. It's just that people are gonna be listening in <laughs> for the first time on a mass scale. So some of this information, you know I know, but could you share with our audience, what was your first experience, thoughts and feelings about people with disabilities before you were pregnant with Malia? So this is an interesting question because I really tried to think back to conversations about people with disabilities. And like you said, they were limited. I thought about this class I taught. So it was a psychology of women class. And what we would do in the class um, was to talk about our areas of privilege and oppression so that we could really reflect on that. Now I'm teaching at an HBCU 
And so it's a psychology of women class. So it's mostly black women in this class. And so as black women, we talk about our oppression due to race and due to gender. And we are very connected to all of the varying ways that our identities are oppressed in this society. But we rarely had talked about our privilege. And so when I asked students, you know, talk about some of your areas of privilege, oftentimes there would be that silence. And so I would nudge them by saying things like, did you think about which seat you could physically access before you sat down today? Or did you think about whether you would be able to hear me today or whether you would be able to get access to a sign language interpreter? And I would notice that a light bulb would go off that's recognizing the ways that abilities and disabilities play out and the lack of thoughtfulness about that within the spaces that we exist in all the time. So the classroom that we're in was a stadium seating classroom. So nobody thought about the fact that only the first desk were accessible to people in wheelchairs. And so there were all these issues of access taking place in that space that because the people in the space of having that conversation didn't have to think about them, the issues of access were invisible. So fast forward to later where I constantly am confronted with my own ableism, other people's ableism, their biases, and all of the access, access issues that we struggle with, I realized that what I talked about on that day was really only the tip of the iceberg. Maya, I think that you touched on something really important. Um, and one is that silence that came when you asked the question, right? Um, about people's abilities, you know, how, eloquent we are when we are able to be in a safe space and talk about race and gender and all of those interesting things and how they um, shape our advantages, but mostly our disadvantages, right? And one of the things that I add to my definition of in, um, intersectionality is that it's not just about the advantages, disadvantages. It is also about the advantages that happen because in different spaces, we can be advantaged based on our identity. But if you move into a different state space from that, you can then be disadvantaged based on that, you know, your that same identity. So for example, a Black person at an HBCU campus um, who is a woman in your class has an advantage, right? Because her identity gives her an opportunity to feel free to express herself, to be understood, to be relatable, right? But if you take that same woman and put her in a predominantly white school where they're talking about European history and different things of that sort, um, then she may have a disadvantage in terms of being invisible or not being that feeling like that space isn't really meant for her, right? And I think that that happens um, a lot of times when we think about identity and when we think about privilege, ability, and disability. And the fact that we tend to associate this term privilege with whiteness, 
right? Mm -hmm. um, th there's something to be said about the fact that even Black people, people of color, people who are traditionally marginalized from these typical identity labels also have privilege, right? And so one place where you were able to point that out was as it relates to their, do you have an, a disability? Do you have an, a dis disability that you feel empowered to even share about in this conversation at this time in this space? You know, I would be curious to know if any of those young women might have had maybe even a learning disability that they didn't feel comfortable sharing in that space. Mm -hmm. um, on top of that, you also talked about the silence that came when you mentioned, can you talk about your privilege, right? And I am used to hearing that silence again, when I'm in a space talking to white people, it's difficult for them to be able to pinpoint what their race-based privilege is because they take it for granted. This is just a part of their lived experience. It's not something that they're um, forced. There's no reason for them to think about um, their advantages as a privilege or coming from a place of privilege until someone with a different experience has an opportunity to share with them how their identity um, impacts or affords them certain privileges that other people don't have. And so in this case, you brought up the word of privilege, you brought up the word of access, um, and you brought up these things that these Black women had never even thought of before. Do you have any reaction to that in regard to, you know, seeing similarities around privilege, um, silence, and things of that sort? I think the biggest thing for me is that I've been on my own personal journey of mm. trying to unlearn these things. Um, and so what I'm doing and, and working to do is just to be honest about the things that I'm unlearning and learning um, so that people can have that space to have that vulnerable conversation first with themselves about things that they need to unlearn and then um, really think about, you know, what, what can we learn? And so, um, I think there has been so much silence, um, partly because people feel the need to get it perfect and to get it right. Mm. And they can't make mistakes. And my thing is, uh, as long as you're trying, right. And for me, I don't experience silence as trying. So as long as we're trying that we lean into the difficult conversations that we acknowledge when we make mistakes and don't get things exactly right, that we make sure that we don't uh, speak over people who have that lived experience, who are willing to take their time and energy to, to educate us. Awesome. So this leads to my next question and I'm gonna answer it too. <laughs> um, well, I think I kind of already did, so that might be cheating, but what was your most impactful experience that framed the way you think about and act towards people with disabilities? Yes. So for me, honestly, it was when I was introduced to spelling to communicate and the autistic spelling community in general. So there are so many children like mine in the world um, who are either non-speakers or minimal speakers. And I use this word non-speaker instead of non-verbal that the medical community often uses because when I first learned of the importance of emphasizing that our children who either 
are minimal speakers or who don't speak with their mouths, that they have lots of verbal skills. That if they're given the right tools and access, that many of them can spell, they can learn to type, they can do all sorts of communication that demonstrates their many verbal skills that does not involve getting their mouths to form words, right? And so for me, when I really got to be in that space with my child and see how with the right tools that she just had so many brilliant ideas to share and that I never would have known had I continued to just emphasize and believe that speaking with your mouth was the only valuable way to speak. And so I'll share this one story um, that she gave me permission to, to share. Um, so I noticed that she didn't want to use her communication board as much when other people came around. Uh, and so I asked her, you know, I, I told her about, you know, how I noticed this and why is it that she doesn't seem to want to use her letter board as much in front of people. And what she spelled was, people act like it is a miracle that we have ideas. And that really, you know, took mm. me, right? Because I remember being one of the people, right? Yeah. I remember when she first was spelling all these words, I'm like, how does she know prehistoric? How does she know how to spell that and distinctive and all these words that she was just spelling? And it's like, because she has been paying attention this whole time, of course, right? Mm. But also the impact of people constantly um, not believing you, right? Not believing your skills and your abilities and the message that it communicates about how they see you. And so I asked her, so what should I tell them when they do this? And she said, tell them we are smart. Interesting. Tell them we are smart. Yeah. And see, one of the things that's really special about um, our relationship as, as sister friends, right, and being um, play aunts <laughs> to each other's children is that each of our children have different abilities, right? So my daughter has Down syndrome um, and Maya's daughter um, has autism. And one of the things that I remember early on was that she caught on to letters really quickly. She caught on to numbers and counting very quickly. And on the other hand, my daughter had a knack where she is also, uh, she, she speaks words. She doesn't speak a lot of words. She is very expressive and communicates very well um, without using a lot of words. And one of the ways that she communicates is through emotion, feeling, and social connection. She is able to connect to people um, in a way that doesn't require a lot of words, right? Not a lot of spoken words, not a lot of verbal words. Um, 
and people understand her and are drawn to her in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's interesting as I've watched um, both of our journeys grow and change and our daughters mature, just the different things that they can do, right? And the fact that they have such amazing and unique brilliances in their own right. Um, and some of that I would like to think has to do with who they came into this world as, you know, not just the whole, uh, you know, ability, disability, autism, but the spiritual space that they came from and in which they occupy this earth, right? And, and, and all of what comes with that um, ancestrally, culturally, and, and all the rest. So do you have anything um, to, to add to that, Maya, as it relates to these differences in ability and people constantly being surprised or not believing or understanding that, you know, our children, um, they have different abilities that might not be show up in the way that we expect or that the typical environment expects? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you said it beautifully about the diversity of these abilities, right? That particularly when you're open to them, then you notice and respond to them. And I think the biggest thing for us is like our experience with doctor's offices and dentist mm. offices and that many times I find that people feel like because they work with children with disabilities, that that tells them something about my child. And mm. so many times they skip the steps of getting to know her and start making recommendations based on things that just are not grounded in anything that's helpful for us, right? Um, we had an amazing visit with a doctor recently who was so helpful, but of course they, she's saying, oh, teach her some more sign language so she can tell you more. And, you know, uh, mm -hmm the way that her motor functioning is, that she knows signs. If I do signs, she can tell you the words, but she can't, she has difficulty actually making the signs herself, but right. she can spell essays, right? And so mm -hmm. this, uh, the person who was, you know, very well-intentioned, um, you know, giving these recommendations, obviously hadn't really taken that time to get to know her and to think, to think about the things that might work specifically for our life. Right, right. That patient-centered, person-centered um, type of healthcare. Um, and we know that our partners in healthcare have so many things to balance. They have an amazing skill set and background and training. And there's always more that we ask of them. But I think for those who are truly dedicated to the people that they serve um, when they are in partnership with us, they make the necessary adjustments, right? To have a caring relationship um, and not just be a healthcare provider, right? And so what I hear from you is that it's wonderful that they receive training and that they're passionate about our population, but if they don't also take the time to get to know each patient individually, then you can wind up missing the whole, <laughs> the whole, you know, the whole opportunity of healing, right? And of um, even just relationship building. 
Um, because I'm sure if Malia was in there and heard what this doctor had to say, she might have had an opinion <laughs> about this doctor's opinion about her communication style. Um, and so these little folks are very um, astute. <laughs> they and what I, one thing that I can say about my daughter is that she can understand a lot more than she can say. Um, and so that goes um, into our understanding of how to engage and interact um, with children and with adults living with disabilities. Don't discount them. I hear Malia saying that over and over again. Don't discount me. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Questions You Didn't Ask, with me, Naisha Frey. Tune in next week as our conversation continues.